1: Every little bit helps. And again, thank you for listening. Welcome to Getting to Know Your Characters, which we assume will be a discussion about writing in some manner. Uh, You want to start introduce yourself?
2: Thomas Watson, write mostly science fiction, some fantasy. Was in a panel earlier today about killing characters. (laughs) So, this has been kind of a surreal day for me. I feel like I'm running backwards here. But yeah, mostly science fiction, a little fantasy, one book that's not really about the dog. There's a few of you in here who really get tired of hearing that joke, I'm sure.
1: And I'm Catherine Wells. Uh, I write mostly science fiction, a little fantasy, and I uh, have one historical novel out. Uh, and uh, new book I'm pushing through now is uh, Crystal Desert, which is the continuation of Aztec Eagle that came out last year.
3: Hello, my name is William Kerr. I'm not very important. I am a D-list celebrity at best. Um yet they keep on inviting me back and uh, giving me a free year if I'll sit on panels and talk about things I know nothing about. Um, I am a playwright, poet, screenwriter, author, uh, former journalist for the NUJ, um, 5.30 return. Jay, come on in, come on in. He was in the wrong, uh, wrong panel room. I
1: think you scared him off.
2: <laughs> Can't imagine. so
3: anyways uh, 530 Return was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize that and $2 will buy you a cheap cup of coffee from um, a uh, broken yeah, from a broken land uh, was a finalist for book of the year uh, the year it was released I think it was 2017 uh, and uh, that and uh, buy you a cheap cup of coffee um uh, the collective was an international bestseller, and caused riots in India. That and two dollars <laughs> will buy you a cheap cup of coffee. <laughs> okay. yeah, 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 just, uh, just. Uh, I am nothing like Tom Watson. Tom Watson.
0: <laughs> Tom Watson
3: um, but, makes makes a off of off of his writing. Well, the funny years. It's too oh, late like for that, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Tom Alton makes that living off of his writing. I, I make less than $500 a year my writing. Okay, in fact, I, I make less than... I break than, even. I, I make less than about $500 a year from my writing. There's so. money. You want to do not It's not everybody want to do it. It's so easy. At any rate, so... Um, I have my methods to do things, and some people think that I'm good at them, and a lot of people think that I'm not at them, and that's what makes me a few At best, and only in Tucson.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and on the end, we have? Oh, hi.
4: I'm Jay Smith. I'm sorry I'm late. Uh, it was a fascinating conversation about LGBTQ issues next door, and the door was locked, so. <laughs> um, I'm a podcaster, primarily. I'm an audio drama producer and writer. I've written a couple novels. Uh, I've, I have a master's degree in fine arts and fiction writing. Uh, a lot of my time is talking to aspiring writers and telling them what not to do, and uh, helping them find their path. So happy to be here. Okay.
1: So in getting to know your characters, well, why don't we just start down at the end with Jay? Jay, what do you do to get to know your characters? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, that's what you I'm get for coming in late, and okay. roll the ball yeah. in your lap. That's fair, I do the same <laughs> to my students. Um,
4: I typically, I will fall in love with one aspect of a character and I will explore from there. Uh, I, I will find a, a vehicle for a character that I like. Uh, but I will have to, I'm an old gamer. I used to play D&D, I called it Cthulhu and all those things. So anyone who's played those games know that the character generation is key to developing a character. And, and that character is going to evolve over the games and it's gonna evolve over your story. So the same principle applies. I will create a character that I think of the surface superficial as, I like this character. And then I ask the question, what do they want? And from there, I just, okay, where did they come from? Why do they want this? And then extrapolate it out. Now who's in the way of this objective? So I create another character. And then I start with a roster. If I going to create a sports team, who will be the supporting characters for this main character and why are they there? And it just becomes a game. And you create a character sheet, Basically, uh, it doesn't have to be you know the statistics don't have to be there, but one of my students just seemed to come to class They have basically a generic character sheet of physical mental uh, Traits down to favorite color Whatever whatever they feel is is it allows them to see the character vividly in their eyes It may not even be relevant to your story but as a writer it allows it, it starts to infuse a sense of authenticity of that character. Because you know them, they're real to you, and then that translates directly to your writing. You're it's like writing about a family member or a friend. Because there's a there's a sincerity and realism to it. That's how I start. I
2: start off by offering them a free beer. <laughs> um, I am what somebody earlier today was referring to as an exploratory writer. A discovery writing is another term for it. And uh, He's a character, character. <laughs> this is why he, okay, <laughs> I get it. Okay, why why he had to do it. Um what happens with uh, me for character development is nothing nearly as analytical is that I start imagining the story. Well there's gonna be people because it's my fiction tends to be character driven. And it very literally will start out with there's gonna be a man that does something, there's a female character that interacts, and this happens. And at some point their identities start to evolve as I'm telling the story. And so, I will get dialogue coming out of them, which defines their personalities, and it's a very much a, a partly subconscious process in which I am trying to think, okay, would this make sense that this guy says something like this in this context? And if he does, that tells me something about who he is, because he's reacting. You know, I look at the situation, how would a person react to this situation? So, at no point do I, I don't make lists or anything I just... It just sort of starts to roll, and I end up with a rough draft in which most of the characters have names, not all of them. Frequently, it's just the guy with dark hair, or something kind of pressing I get through the very first draft, which, you know, to call it a rough draft would be a horrifying understatement. And then I go through and figure out who these people really are, and whether or not they fit these roles, or if I have to move something around. I get through that second pass, now I've got characters. And again, at, at this point, they're real people. You know, I understand their motives because I've created a situation that motivates them, and there's a, a feedback that happens. It's the best way I can describe it. Uh, it's a messy process. I've really, I really—I know people who get the same amount of work done half the time I do. When I try to formalize it or uh, worse, outline things, it just goes up the slope. I can't say. That. Yeah, I—I uh,
1: also kind of. Explore uh, before I—I uh, I do it mostly before I sit down and start writing, not entirely, but uh, I like to go hiking. And, and when I'm hiking, and my body's busy doing things, and my mind is free to just spin, and you know, I let my characters talk to each other. What do they say? How do they react? Yeah. Uh, uh, what are the relationships? Well, you know, um, I like to say I, I, I put the, the two characters in the room and let them talk to each other. And, and uh, so I, I get kind of a general sense of the characters. And then I start writing. And then they will evolve as I write. And sometimes I have to go back to the beginnings. Oh, wait, wait, got to go back. <laughs> and, and change this and add this other scene in here because what do you know, this happened to that character and it's going to affect down there. So, um, yeah, but it, it's, it's very much, very fluid uh, in terms of, of, of finding the character and uh, yeah. having it come together.
3: Okay, I guess I'm a bit of a freak. Trey <laughs> already knows what my process is and how, how insane it is.
1: Yeah, you're free. Yeah. that's cool. Okay. When I I decided I was going to start writing fiction,
3: I had no intention of writing fiction before that. Right? And I said, okay, there has to be a process that I can go through, okay, to ensure that my characters are engaging and have development. And I uh, hooked up with a guy by the name of David Freeman who teaches screenwriting and he has a process for developing screenwriting characters and I adapted that process to, uh, writing, uh, to writing books and it worked very well for me but now I can't do it any other way. <coughs> <laughs> every character has at l- every main character has at minimum two strengths and two flaws and at the beginning of the story they are in stasis. They balance each other up. I I, I call it a, a character diamond, but it could be a, a character quadrangle or whatever, um, or uh, whatever uh, whatever you want, or just a character star. Now, um, the thing is, is that they have these things that they're strong at. They have these things that they're weak at, but they're okay with themselves as they are. They've uh, learned how to live with their weaknesses and how to uh, how to maximize their strengths, and then something happens, and it goes out of state, and now they're imbalanced. Now they can't rebalance themselves without interacting with one or more other people who have strengths that counter their weaknesses. And those characters have multiple strengths and multiple weaknesses. And what I end up doing is I end up putting them on three by five cards, and then I block out all the scenes, and every scene has to either advance the plot or advance the character development, or best, do both simultaneously. Okay, so that they're talking while the action is going on and it's not people in rooms talking interspersed with action. Okay, which I I have people yell at me about. Um, And that's how I do it, and it takes me weeks to get everything laid out but once it's laid out i start typing i know what every character is going to do and i've got the three by five cards okay i'm on this scene it's this one this one and uh this one okay yeah okay and i type out all the dialogue and then i type out the action in between the dialogue and i move on to the next and it's a disgorgement process that takes me very little time to write because i've already written everything okay. Listen. I also outline the hell out of everything, and if I and if I stray from the outline,
1: of their writer's block, and I have to leave the chapter. So I, I generally do an an outline, but it's it's more plot. It doesn't have character development in it. That that comes as I work with the characters and as I put them in situations and how do they react it. and it sounds a little woo, but but. But uh, uh, they they really kind of take on their own uh, personality, and sometimes they surprise me. I'm like, you know, that character felt that way about that until you know. Uh, I don't quite know how to explain it. It's not logical, but it it just it grows out of the situation and the people and and the the dialogue exchange.
2: Well, I made a, a brief comment, and this, this comes from a
1: panel at Apple Store, Sharon Skinner was
2: in here talking about themes in and, and, and fiction. And somewhere in the conversation, uh, some, uh, something exchange we had was revealed the fact that for a lot of us, this is about 20% conscious effort and about 80% going in the back of your brain, yeah. that you're not entirely, which just gives you, you know, you hear writers say things about the, right, the characters talking to them or telling them how mm-hmm. something's gonna happen. What that really is all about is, well, we're not necessarily not schizophrenic, but the, the stuff in the back of your head is working while you're yeah. focused on something else, even if it's the project you're writing. And the characters are developing, kind of simmering in the back burner until you need them. And when you bring this material into the conscious, there's more to it than you expected. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, I'm frequently am surprised by where a character goes, I'm usually pleased by it, thinking, wow, okay, this is really going to work cool, I'm going to go with this. And, but it wasn't there, it wasn't something I plotted or decided the day before or an hour before, it was just suddenly there. And it works, usually it works at that moment. Now, there are times when I'm going through the revisions and realizing I'm
3: barking up the wrong tree and this is not going But that's why you, know, you have revisions. When I wrote uh, From a a Broken Land, I wrote the first five chapters and I realized, you know what, I don't need any of these chapters. (laughs) 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 And so I had to delete all five chapters and start over from right that point. I said, okay, you know what, no, we're just going to start in the middle of the action when things get good, we're not going to have any lead up. So, yeah. So, the a week of work. Just. I just had, I had the opposite
2: experience with, with uh, this, the book that follows this one, which has not been released yet, uh, where I realized I started at about five chapters too late. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. I got, I I got to the very end of it and realized where the book was <laughs> going and realized I had not set this up. Mm-hmm. This, this is where the story has to be, this is what these characters are going to be, who they're going to be, but there's nothing at the beginning of the draft that makes any this makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I have to go back and literally write a new beginning to it like before it turned out to be four chapters. Mm-hmm. I've never done that before. It was kind of a shock to the system. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, hey, yeah.
3: I- I will say that I quite often have to go back and lay in shotguns, if you understand what I mean by shotgun on and mm-hmm. yeah, that, yeah, the metal. Yeah, shotgun on a metal where something's gonna be necessary at the, at the end. Okay, and so I have to go back and I have to integrate it into the character who's going to use it at the beginning, okay, and then leave it like that. I quite often have to do that. Yeah. Joanne uh, tells me, did you put all the shotguns back? And I'm like, no, I missed this one and this one. Thank you, honey. <laughs> one of my things
4: is, as a my background in performing arts, collaborative theater, one of the great exercises that I've, I've tried to develop is taking everybody out of the script everything out of the story. If I have a problem with how the kind of characters connect them, I put them in a room together and I have them talk. Yeah. I will I will have a table read for my characters. I'm used to having a table read for my actors and a lot of creative things come out when you're collaborating with actors. When I get the characters talking to each other, the same kind of thing happens. So it's kind of like that moment in any Bond film where Bond is finally face-to-face with the villain and things happen. He reveals the plot. Getting, those, getting the protagonists and the antagonists and supporting characters just posturing against each other like, like a West Side Story musical, just kind of talking about their goals, often generates new ideas and finds aspects of those characters that when you're in the moment of the scene, you're thinking about where am I, what am I, what, what am I smelling, what am I seeing, it takes you out of that conflict, whereas if you, if you take the time and you do the exercise with the characters in a room with nothing else, just white walls, have them talk, then you start to figure out what they really want. And then you take it back and you say, well, you know, that last two chapters, screw it, i got to get rid of those, because their real meaning isn't really in that text.
0: Do you write that out when you say that you haven't talked? Do you just, like, type it out? Yep.
4: I've got volumes of never-to-be-seen conversations. I might put them in a blog if I think it's clever, <laughs> it's not clever. It's clever.
3: What, what was that bit that you used to do? Was it the Citadel?
4: Oh, um, yeah, The Citadel Boys is a, was a series that I wrote. It was just dialogue, and it was...
3: Every time somebody died, they joined the Citadel. So every time somebody famous died, they became a new character in the Citadel. <laughs> Basically, the premise was, it was after Douglas Adams died. And he,
4: he's a devout atheist, and the story originally was a concept of him arriving in an afterlife that was neither hell nor heaven. And he was joined, he had the first people he meets, H.P. Lovecraft, and Edgar Allan Poe, who are now best friends, and maybe a little more. And then just that conversation, and then I just added Jimmy Buffett to to the conversation. And I'm just trying to figure out in their head, how would they interact as characters? What would they sound like? And that just, you know, the Jimmy Buffett analog is gonna end up in a story someday because I'm exploring his books and all that. Yeah, thank you. One of the things that I did at one point where I was getting kind of stuck with my characters was I interviewed, you
0: know, which feels really weird because of course it's all in your head, but getting, letting them talk to you in their voice, it lets you hear their voice, and you can ask them questions and and demand that they give you the answers for what's motivating them, what what their secrets are, why they're doing or not doing the things they're doing. And uh,
1: that turned out to be a pretty good. There's a wonderful play called Six Characters in Search of an Author. <laughs> and it's, it's these characters that the author has created, and he hasn't been able to write the play for them. And they come to him and talk to him and basically force his hand and make him deal with them.
2: Uh, and that's, the, yeah, I've had characters come and talk to me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, something similar will happen is I'll be, I'll a dialogue exchange going on or they're discussing a the situation. And the characters will get into this very long-winded, detailed conversation. And I'll get done with it and realize, if I leave this in there, people are just going to nod right off. But everything they've talked about, I needed to know. Yes. So I take the dialogue out, I turn it into something else, use the information some other way, and it still builds the characters. But my readers aren't going to suddenly go into a coma <laughs> reading <laughs> the stuff. And you hear, you'll hear, hear writers say this on panels, there are things that I need to know when I'm telling the story. You guys don't need to know it. Because it's going to be in the background, little bits of detail to sprinkle here and there. It doesn't need to be. But it's literally come out as conversations between the characters. I have yet to have had myself injected into those things, like like the director of the movie stepping in and saying, "What are you guys talking about?" Uh, it's never actually occurred to me to do that. Of course, now that the idea is in my head, it I've, might happen. I've
3: found that um, I can't write about a character if I don't understand what they're going through. So I really do inject a lot of my own experiences. When I was 14 years old, I had already won the Young Office Conference twice. Okay, I was thinking, I'm going to be a science fiction writer, I'm going to write about this and these high adventures, and I suddenly said, one day I said, how the hell can I write about all these things when I haven't experienced a damn thing? Okay, so I need to go out and experience life. And that's when I started writing the writing. So, and drafted, gave my mother red hairs, and my sister refused to go because she saw me get trampled by a bowl, and get back up and go off, and go back in the next week. But um, uh, but it was the beginning of a lifelong love affair with danger and death. And it gives you, it gives me, and it, it gives me a perspective that often my characters need to have okay how do you face death if you can't face life uh, or in 5:30 return how what does uh, addiction what did my own my own struggles with addiction give me that I could give to Juan uh, the monster and uh, it worked out very well and he was able to explain what's going on and, I was able to translate that across to that one kid, uh, that one son of my, uh, my one fan out in Wyoming, who gave the book to his kid, twelve year old kid. I'm like, oh my God, you did what? <laughs> I said, they've got nipple clamps in this thing. Okay, it's graphic. <laughs> okay, and he said, no, no, no. Now he understands why his mother left him and what the drugs were. We had a really good conversation. I'm like, okay, well, I guess that's okay, but, but, but. <laughs> <laughs> There's gratuitous sadism in the thing. <laughs> okay. but uh,
2: we're, we're all part of probably the only profession that exists where you can have a heart attack and, it, it, you, and I've heard of somebody doing this. Going through the paramedics are taking care of, he knows he's having a heart attack and he's making mental notes <laughs> yes. of what's happening because he wants to remember this in case he never writes a character <clears throat> who, has, who, who has a heart attack. And, you know, you'll hear writers joke like this, you know, the broken heart, I know what that feels like. I can put it in the book. It's yeah. all, you know, experience is what, you know, people say, where do you get your ideas? From everything. Yeah. Well, wow. Everything that's ever happened to me.
4: Why do you bring that up? I wrote, my master's thesis was a book called Resurrection Pact, and the main character had just beat Leukemia. And I, my brother had gone through it, so he was my primary source. Uh, another friend of mine didn't make it. He went through a similar situation. I did a lot of research. I asked my characters how they felt, and I got good answers. I thought, flash forward a couple of years, guess what? I have cancer. I had to go through that whole process. Now, proximity to that, oh, I'm rewriting that book. There's that emotion. My characters are now Winston. Winston Casey, who I named after the two character, two people in my life who went through it, is giving me much different answers. That that physical. Even if you talk to someone, when I talk to my brother, how did you feel? I, I understood it intellectually, but I didn't get it. I asked him after I wrote the book, did I get it? He went, yeah. And then after he, 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 he came to me after I was, after my surgery, he said, do you get it now? And I said, yeah, I do. So there is a limit when you write your characters. You, you're going to have to fall back on the old writer's crutch of you're a professional liar. You have to either convincingly lie and let it go, recognize what you're just competent in lying about, and then go back and get more, and then recognize what you're, you're from bullshit And
3: then that's when you start to do more research. Yeah. And in fact, um, sometimes the process is not cathartic. Sometimes the process is ridiculously painful. And uh, not only because you're talking about, Jay's talking about this, time, I'm reminded of a time when we were both in college. Jay drunk me back from the edge of destruction. That's the only way I can say it. He saved my life. Um, he uh, I was writing a play called Memorial in Green. And it was a play about a failed soldier who returns after war, okay, who blames himself for everything that has happened to all the people around himself and uh, and his discussions with the memorial are part of that play, of a, of a war memorial that's all clean and uh, top of that, the idea Green and Corroded. Um, and by the time I got to the middle of that, I was howling at the, I was drunk all the time, I was in tears, I could not finish the damn play, and I never will, it'll kill me. But Jay's the one who, who's like, dude, dude, we're going to pull your ass back, you know, and we're going to we're gonna go back to playing spades and chasing girls, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so uh, I, I credit uh, all of my work is actually Jay's fault. So <laughs> Because uh, if I had completed that, because uh, I was bound to determine I was going to complete it, but. Yeah, it's because I had been there. I had been there. I had been a failure in the military. And I, I I served my time and then I got an honorable discharge. But the military and I both agreed that I had no business being in the military. Um, so, uh,
4: but. Um, yeah. uh, someone who gave you orders, I, that makes total sense.
3: Yeah.
4: <laughs> I, I never knew that. Well, thank you. I, Continue. I'm sorry. I'm done. Mm-hmm. You can make fun of me now. <laughs> oh, I will. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> a while. Yeah.
0: <coughs> <laughs> Flying bush. Uh, yeah. Any of you in the audience have thoughts about when you right? Yes, sir. We you were talking about real experience versus acquired experience or researched experience. Mm-hmm. I kept thinking of Stephen Crane because. Mm-hmm. He wrote his best book about war when he knew absolutely nothing about war. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. then he got some experience of, like, open-door or something, and, and, and that was actually inferior, <laughs> at least in terms of the eyes of the critics of who, who look at his career. And so I'm, I'm wondering about how in the world are you a
1: better, is, is this guy's just a better liar. <laughs> um,
3: <laughs> but, no, once you've experienced, how many people here have been rock climbers? Okay, so you understand what I say, what uh, what I mean when I or uh, either and either of you free climbers. Okay, free, okay, free climb. You were a free climber. I was a free climber. Okay, big walls, huh? Big walls. Yeah, big uh, wall, big cliffs. Uh, uh, for me, and uh, the um, when you are climbing that wall or that cliff. You are not afraid. There's no fear, but you are so hyper-focused, okay, that nothing else exists. You can't lie about that. But if you try to explain it to somebody, you get wordy and it gets difficult. So you have to find a way to explain it without actually explaining it. Uh, That's what I've I've found you have to do. Uh, if you're in combat, if you're in a war zone, having been in a war zone, uh, you are not afraid. You are hyper-focused and you are, uh, it, and you are making sure that you're not making any mistakes, but you know that you might and your next step might be your best. And you just accept that and you move on and it kills you afterwards, because afterwards is where you go, what the hell did I just do? What the hell did I just do? What the hell did I just do? I just do? But in the moment, not all. Can you explain that? No. You have to find a way to work around it so that your audience knows what is happening and you can convey that without actually telling them in some long, wordy, 12 paragraph diatribe on how it feels to be shot at by the guy this time. A lot of it is analog. Horror writers, obviously, there are no vampires, there are no zombies. No. i try to convince you. Point of order. uh, My first published work. Mm-hmm. was an interview with two people who were serial killers who believed themselves to be vampires. We, we know this interview. <laughs> the, the, the thing is that... Be between <laughs>
2: <laughs> them.
4: The point is that they're empty vessels for whatever you really feel. And it, it allows you to lie in a way that's relatable. That The zombies represent something that people can relate to, even if it's not a specific experience or an, an activity. Um, and zombies can mean any number of different things. Uh, the fact is that, that they're, the, they're a, 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 a catalyst for this real story about real people, but vampires end up representing addiction or some, uh, some kind of, like in the 80s, vampires rep- represented greed and avarice, and then it became really, really sexy, and, and it became a metaphor for LGBTQ issues, but whatever you apply to that. So in a way, it, when we write characters, we're telling you a different kind of story through a vessel that you may not I may not relate to you, with athletics or anything in that nature, but you tell me a story and that's that.
2: that those traits are applied to a monster. I get it. It's something. I it's something I realized. You know, the bits and pieces of it is that the more diverse my own experiences are, the easier it, is, easier it is for me to imagine somebody else doing something I have not experienced. If that makes sense. I mean, I'm. I, you know, as I've gotten older over the years and, and had more things happen to me and gotten myself into more things, it's easier to relate to and understand people who have different experiences uh, and to make sense and then to incorporate that into the fiction and right? Which, of course, your... leads you straight to characters that make more sense. The accumulation of experiences helps you project into experiences you have had? That's a good way to put it, yeah. It's, it's easier to imagine something like that because...
1: But it, it kind of breaks down this this idea of of self that you have when you, things happen to you, and it, that's not how I imagined it would be. Yeah. And and so you're like, okay, well, you know, I I made a mistake. If I could make that kind of mistake, you can make that kind of. I I get it. I understand now why people, you know, do things that to me like, well, that was really stupid. Why did they do that? Well, <laughs> I did something that was really stupid, and I'm like, okay, it's easier than I thought it would be. <laughs> um, so it, it just, it as you accumulate more experiences, it just kind of opens you up, and it it puts little pinholes in, in that screen that you have uh, around yourself that, that kind of separ- separates you from reality in a way. Uh, because you're just sure it, when you start out that it, it's, maybe not a perfect world, but it's, it, you have a particular vision of the world, and as things happen that jar that vision, that poke holes in it, then you become more receptive to things that are outside your experience and, and I think are better able to relate to them and then incorporate them into your, your characters in your life.
3: I would uh, I would interject that uh, I'm not disagreeing with you uh, at all. Um, uh, I would interject that you can't know everything about what your characters are going through. Um, for instance, ask a 12 uh, year old boy to write a, uh, write a short story about sex. Okay? He might be exceptionally well read and know how everything works and he'll have no clue. Okay, but he'll write, he'll, he'll write some really, really, really bad erotica and you'll, you'll end up with something that you can laugh at because, oh my God, yeah, I remember when I was that old too. Um, but if you can find other aspects of your own experience that you can put into the character, you can use, you can skirt around the things that you don't know and just say, yes, and this is happening, but I was feeling this at this time, or I was feeling this at this time. Uh, that's a way to skirt, because none of us is, I mean, one of my characters was a 17-year-old girl. I have never been a 17-year-old girl, and I never will be a 17-year-old girl, um, and I had no idea what she was going through, and yet I had to write about her because she was the character that you to be there at the time. So um
2: that's why we have this thing called imagination. Yeah. When you feed it's the imagination, imagination your experiences, and everything you read, everything, it's true and false. Famous quote. It's all material. Yeah. yeah. So
1: it's all grist from the mill. Yeah.
2: So it's gristier than others, <laughs> but that's life. Yeah. Sometimes it's it's good to surround yourself with colorful people. I will
1: <laughs> and and sometimes it's good to look at the kind of ordinary people around you and say, so what's extraordinary about them? What's yeah. uh, not you know? But what 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 is there? They they mu- obviously they must have something that makes them special to someone. But you know, what? Uh, uh, you know, th- this book got started because I was with a group of people down in Rocky Point and uh, we were hanging out on the beach, you know, drinking beer and having a good time, and this little kid came along with a box full of uh, little souvenir, trinket type stuff, souvenirs that he was selling to the tourists who were on the beach, you know, and and uh, he... Of course, he didn't speak English, but fortunately, we had several people in the group that spoke Spanish, or native Spanish speakers. And so, that you know, they're having a little conversation, and he very earnestly, you know, put the box down. And, was, and, and that started this whole thing with what, what where does he go from here? What, what are his ideas? What are his dreams? If he became, and I took another character I had worked with. Years ago, and never never gone anywhere. Said, what if he became this pilot, uh, you know, of aircraft? How would that, you know, how would he get from here to there? What would be, uh, you know, his challenges along the way? What would be his motivation? Um, and and that's how the whole story grew. Was was just. A, a, a not very uh, uh, dynamic <laughs> a person that I, I met or that I encountered. And as you say, it's grist for the metal. It, it's all material. Uh, you pull it in and you figure out how to use it. Something
2: that surprised the heck out of me shortly after I started writing for self publication there was a, a gap when I stopped writing for a while because I wasn't making any progress. And this whole aspect of the publishing the ebook book directly came up, and I started again. Realizes I was creating characters and particularly dialogue. I've gotten compliments for real, the, the reality of the dialogue. So it sounds like real people talking, which it never occurred to me that I was doing anything in particular. And when I started hearing it from, from readers, I was like, okay, that's good. I've got something now. And it, it was literally writing one day, and I suddenly realized why. I spent a lot of years working retail, <laughs> <laughs> and I hated every freaking hour of it. And now, irony of my is I'm finding it's enormously useful because I talk to so many people. I can communicate with so many people in so many different ways. What were what, what you, was you, was you working in that I just... I retail. Time. Okay, retail. Retail. Okay. I completely really missed. Yeah, it was in bookstores, pet stores, you know, all sorts of things like that, which being other days. And to realize one day that this particular grist was the reason why I could make people sound like they were really talking to each other. It was, it was uh, yeah, literally sitting there with my hands and people are thinking, wow, oh, that's how that works. <laughs> oh, and then I went right back to <laughs> it. Yeah. That's one of the things that, that I tell writers
0: that I work with who are struggling with dialogue where it's very stiff and very stilted and the sentences are all long and dramatically correct and all that, which we know doesn't <laughs> happen in the world. I think, go oh, eavesdrop. At the grocery store, or at you know Lowe's, or wherever you happen to be
2: out and about in the world,
0: listen to people talk.
2: I brought up Truman Caproni briefly There's one of he said got a book out there called years ago called uh, Music for Camellias. Mm-hmm. That he parts of it he's talking about writing and doing this. And one of the ways he got particularly adept at, at uh, writing dialog is he had to take a bus to the day job. Yeah. And so he would sit there every day with a notebook in his lap. He'd listen to people. He'd write down what they were saying. Mm-hmm. Every now and then he'd get caught doing that. It was awkward. <laughs> yeah. but he would go home and he'd study what he'd written and what kind of person had said it. And, and I realized that purely by accident I'd done something very similar with mm-hmm. just by enduring yeah. those, those terms of employment. <laughs> I shared the same thing. Like, i we're gonna retail retailers. I hated every minute of it. <laughs> Harlan Ellison did something very similar.
4: He, in one of his classes was... It's listen to everybody. Yes. not am just going on the bus, but he would listen. He would watch the people's court and just close his eyes and listen to people testify ah, sure. because people speak differently under different circumstances. Yes. At retail, it's usually the, you know, the dynamic. Yeah. Yes. I'm the customer voice. Yes. They immediately get into that role. So that's yeah. not really sincere, but if you listen to people in different situations... Yes. Especially the people closest to you, you know that they're that they're most gentle and confident, but then they get to the bar and then they start <laughs> speaking different, and it, it becomes an education. It it becomes fun. I, I think of dialogue as a form of music, in that everybody speaks with their own with their own instrument. And that instrument changed the way they play. That instrument changes in the context, and that's you have to be mindful of that because that will inform the character too. Are they quick to rage, and does that change the tone of their dialogue, their voice? Uh, that's that's. I think you're right. Retail is very influential in, in, particularly those very those moments where you have to choose your words carefully. <laughs> Yes,
2: I will see to that right away. I'll take care of you. You would get situations, bookstore comes to mind when I was working at bookstores. You would be dealing with customers who were buy books that they loved. And you'd hear that bit, the that enthusiasm. You'd get really excited. And of course, I'm sitting by and kind of thinking, boy, I hope I write something that doesn't to somebody. Someday. Or the ones that you know were seriously pissed off because you weren't going to give them a refund or so, that you did the whole range, or the
4: customer comes in. Do you have that book? I think it's blue. Oh, yeah, cover. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. no. yeah I it actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> now, I had
3: a, uh, I had the benefit of being a uh, news director for a radio station, so I had to talk nonstop. Okay, and I have a funny story if anybody wants to hear it about how I became famous as a news director, and it's not a good way um, <laughs> Uh, but um, the uh, what I found most beneficial is I write all the dialogue first and I tell the story completely. Now, mind you, I'll do it chapter by chapter and then fill out the chapter by chapter, but I write all the dialogue out first. So just, you know, he says this and she says this and he says this, and so maybe I have a little line in there and this happens and then this and, this and this and this and this, and I tell the story completely and all the character development through the dialogue. Then I stop. And I go back, and I put in the action words appropriate so that they're saying something in the middle of the action, so the the, the, the story is progressing as well as it can, and yet staying along with the plot. Um, now on to the funny story. Um, I had to uh, go to a uh, had to go to a press conference, and I was running late, but I still had to make the uh, I still had to make the twelve o'clock newscast. So I sat down and I pounded out the newscast at lightning speed, uh, 30, uh, 30 seconds per page. <makes noise> Pull it out, run back to the uh, run back to the uh, to the uh, uh, to the studio, uh, record it. And at uh, the very end was uh, at the very end was a um, was a little blurb on what the temperature was in some foreign location. <laughs> and this time it was Bogota Bogota. Okay. And so I just went <laughs> through it, blah 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 blah. Boom. I uh, uh, took the tape over to the DJs, ran out the door, headed to the Capitol. Um, and uh, and I saw him the Capitol. I come back from the Capitol, okay, which was a nothing which was a nothing uh, press conference, but I had to be there. And my office had a new banner that went all around the wall. It seems that when I read it off, I wasn't even paying attention to what I was saying. And so, the temperature in Bogota, (laughs) okay, that one thing. And so, I come back and there's this banner, okay, nicely painted, and it says Bogota so, Bogota is pronounced Bo Ga Ta. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Bogota, uh, 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 Bo- Bogota, not Bogode. Uh, uh, it's not long A, mm. as in lame brain. <laughs> I didn't get fired for it, but there you go. uh, We we got about 150 calls on that.
0: uh, (laughs) (laughs) I I wanted to ask you about your you know, your versillamitude with your dialogue. Um, The problem, the the, the thing that I'm I'm puzzling over is because a lot of people are kind of boring. uh, Isn't it pretty bland and average? And then doesn't that sort of defeat the purpose of writing to make it more interesting and communicative? And, I mean, something, you're doing something, right, that, that's doing right, but I'm, I'm just wondering about if we're really accurate about how people actually talk, would we really be creating interest? Well, you're or, or are you filtering way. it and making something that sounds like how people talk, but that you're sort of creating a very good illusion of?
2: How people in my case, yes. it's mostly that they're that they're uh, that I've learned how people project things when they feel certain ways and that sort of thing. Because I've never worked with anybody that's piloted Starship, mm-hmm. and I have dialogue happening in such situations all the time. It's, it's knowing when to use contractions, when to use pauses, mm-hmm. you know, it isn't the actual context of context oh, what this oh, person was right. saying there. It's what he was referring to, like, music. I've learned to hear the, the, the songs mm-hmm. by doing it, and I'm able to play with that, that information, with that experience. Everything.
0: You're picking up cadence, you're picking up habits and styles, and it seems credible, and you're probably making it more communicative and expressive than average, but you're getting the tone right, and yeah, the and, it has,
2: right and the... All of that morphing with the fact that I'm writing outrageous things, yeah. you know, the that, things that could never possibly happen, but, you know, I, I'm trying to make it sound like real people are dealing with yeah. there's, there's also the
4: conceit that you're telling a story through the dialogue and saying certain things that normal people wouldn't ever say the trope of, as you know, Bill. <laughs> is, it, it's necessary in some cases just to get the information out there. Uh, the Aaron Sorkin walk talk is a great example of this, where an entire story is told in the hallway. And news people would never communicate. that would be an email or something, but they have to be dramatic about it. And most people aren't that way. They, we are boring, especially with uh, like, um, sitcom talk in particular. It is hyper... It, well, no it's not hyper realistic it is the opposite of hyper realistic it is going for the joke set up punchline people don't talk that way but it's a device depending on your genre and the format that makes it fit and people just go okay I like that. but like if i'm writing a story set in uh, shakespeare's time i'm not going to use that language <laughs> uh, i'm i'm not going to if i have characters that if i set a story in french obviously i'm going to write english dialogue and maybe we we'll show up Maybe once a Well Shakespeare talks. doesn't reflect how people talk at all. Right, but if I'm, if I'm in writing in that context, if I'm telling a story in that period, or if I'm doing a Shakespearean type
3: knockoff, if you will. Uh, I think the, 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 the main point is that, you, no, your, your characters are not going to be talking like real people. Right. And if you're trying to make them sound like real people, you're going to have a boring book, yeah. and they're not going to convey any information what you want to do is you want to convey information in the most artistic way possible without slapping somebody in the face with uh, with, with, the idea. It comes across like it's real. Yeah, (laughs) so that it comes across like it's real, but you are conveying the information in the most efficient way possible without making it sound like you're trying to convey information. It has
1: to sound natural, Mm -hmm. as though it it feels natural coming out of that character's mouth. Uh, Even though, as you say, real people may not be that forthcoming or that witty or what.
4: If you watch it, a Marvel movie, aliens don't speak that way. They speak like Tony Stark. They try to. It's that vernacular that you're used to because it's a Marvel movie. They speak, all of them speak a certain way across the universe. So would that more or less be, okay, this is a conversation
0: that will almost assuredly never happen however it would be possible?
1: Hmm? Uh, it would it would be well, in some cases possible, yeah. Uh, Given I, you know the different laws. I, of I hate physics. to put I hate to put parameters on it like that, but uh, you get well if if you see uh, the uh, uh, the comedians who do impressions impersonations, and they latch onto speech patterns that, uh, you know, they, of whoever it is they're trying to impersonate. It's that kind of thing, not to that degree, but you catch the patterns of speech, you you catch the uh, um, kind of the flow of, of, of people around you, and, and you recognize that someone who grew up in East L.A. is going to have a different speech pattern than someone who grew up in uh, Berkeley. You know, uh, it, it's that that kind of thing. You you have to kind of capture the um, the essence, I guess, is is what we're talking about here. It's you get the essence of the speech rather than you used a really good
2: word for just a moment, ago, making it sound natural.
1: Natural, yeah, like,
2: yeah. Don't people talk it yeah. regardless of what the context of the story is. Right.
3: So, I'm writing uh, the uh, I'm writing the first book that wrong. Okay. And this is all about dialogue. I'm writing the first book, The Broken Throne, and I'm doing what I do, which is I write out the dialogue and I fill in the uh, I fill in the uh, the action. And uh, it is a solitary affair, and I'm just pounding away words all day, all night, nonstop. And Joanne is getting bored. So she laughs at this now, but it was infuriating at the time. I'm proud. She of it now. <laughs> now. She, uh, she started binge watching. Jane Austen. Okay, in the other room. Okay, and I'm writing this. And I'm writing this. And I'm doing. I'm doing. A uh, and the Countess Elnid, Uh, Delmar. Uh, it's a son of a bitch. I'm writing Jane Austen. <laughs> well. I've started now, and it kind of works. Okay, I'll just keep with Jane Austen. Okay, honey, could you please watch something else other than Jane Austen? Okay, so uh, I'm gonna. So she turns it down real low. And who was the other guy you did? Oscar Wilde. She does ah, ah, Oscar Wilde. Uh, at this point, I'm doing *Burger and Carolyn. Okay, who were Scamblers? Okay and so like, okay, her here, this, and here, they're having to go back and forth The some of the bits are running after a while. Okay. And I had to, like, banish her to the other room with, it, down on, down, with, the, with the volume down on two. Hold on. the <earphones. laughs>
2: There's a reason that my office space is as far from where the TV is set up in the house as yeah. possible. And even then... When I'm writing it, we're headphones to
3: listen to music. But we have five minutes left. Do you want to go through for last thoughts?
1: Yeah, I was going to say, we're at yeah, the end of our time. and you want to have last thoughts? or. You want I've to just given my that? last thoughts, so I'll
4: let everybody else have those. I think I've talked enough, but if you want to listen to any of my work, it's at jaysmithaudio.com. There's hours of free stuff to download, and if you like what you hear,
2: you can buy some of my books and help me pay out my student loans. <laughs> oh, last thought that occurs to me is that if this you get the impression listening to these panels that this is sometimes a really messy business. You're right. Absolutely. This this there's people say I just write straight through and it's done. You know, they're, 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 lying, they're, lying, they're, lying, they're lying on the writers. <laughs> it doesn't work that way.
1: So Yeah, we we were talking theoretically about getting to know your characters, but you see how easily it just drifted into <laughs> other areas of writing because it, it's it's just it's an integral process, you can't separate it into pieces, but if you'd like to hear another topic, tomorrow afternoon at 2 o'clock we'll be discussing saying something without being preachy, so we'll get into this whole dialogue okay. thing.
3: And I would like to close out by posting uh, the question, who would win in a steel cage match, um, Santa Claus or Sasquatch? <laughs> Just because I always bring you to as Santa Claus and Sasquatch. <laughs> Depends and, on how you define well, yeah, well the last panel I was on none of us had anything to really say on the subject so we just kept bringing it back to Santa Claus versus Sasquatch you know and, but,
1: thank you very much everybody oh, oh, oh,
3: oh, oh. Hi,
0: thank you for listening to the Creative Play and Podcast Network If you enjoyed our show, please check out D&D Journey of the 5th Edition and Ragnarok and Roll a Scion Hero to Ragnarok Story. Also, check out our Patreon page for more content and behind-the-scenes things, as well as joining us for a one-shot game or two.